Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, up to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a Navy SEAL veteran. He's a best-selling author, and he created the Terminal List series currently on Amazon Prime. We're happy to have in the house today, Jack Carr. Jack, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I'll tell you, this is this is kind of a backstory to how I got to and I I found Terminal List. So we have a we have a uh, we do three podcasts a week, and one is called Turn Two with Booney, where basically you're in. I have a a guest host, and he interviews me, and we came up with a segment. What am I watching? And he he suggested to me. He said. There's a show out there you might like. It's called Terminal List. I said, okay, I checked it out. First first episode, I'm about halfway through. And you know how you don't know if you're going on? Well, about three quarters of the way. And for the people out there that watch the Terminal List, you'll understand this. It hooks you. And you're in. And, you know, I watched. I, I binge watched it. And uh, pretty awesome. And that got me excited. I'm like, oh, I, I, I want to find the guy that created this and wrote the books. And. And we were lucky enough for for you to come on, so that's that's very cool. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to to watch, and uh, it was a blast making that whole thing. And I got extremely lucky in that uh, the people involved that optioned it, Chris Pratt, and then bringing Antoine Fuqua in, and then getting it to Amazon, and finding the showrunner David DiGilio, that they wanted me involved in every aspect of it. So a lot of times they like to get rid of the author because they don't want you on set saying, you know, you ruined my vision because there's differences between the book and the show because you're telling a story on via different mediums. But uh, they wanted me involved in all of it from the get go. So I was extremely fortunate and learned a ton. And that was the first one you've written six books. The most recent one is uh, Only the Dead. Before we go back to the beginning, was this your plan all along to write books and then turn them into series? It was just because growing up, I knew I wanted to do those two things. One, serve my country in uniform, specifically as a SEAL, and then write thrillers. Because uh, back in the day, you could read all the nonfiction about special operations, Navy SEALs in particular, and I'm talking early 80s, mid 80s here. And you could essentially find the end of the internet by finding the end of that library bookshelf. But there were these other things out there, these thrillers by guys like Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted in real life one day. And so if you remember the protagonist, the main character in 
typical 80s action movies or TV shows or in books, they were all Vietnam veterans. I shouldn't say all. A lot of them were Vietnam veterans. And they were Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces, Marine snipers, uh, CIA, paramilitary. So I was reading books by guys like David Morrell, who created the character Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood. And I'm figuring, wow, David Morrell probably did some research into his character. And so I'm learning as I'm reading these thrillers and I'm falling in love with these books at the same time. So I realized that after my time, my other passion other than serving my country in uniform was to write these thrillers. So what I was really doing was giving myself an early education in the art of storytelling. But I always knew after the military, I'd write these books. And as a child of the 80s, it was very natural for me to think, oh, I will write a book, then it will become a TV show or it'll become a movie. And that's just what you did. And uh, so that was always my plan from the beginning. All the way down to Chris Pratt being the lead, right? All the way down to Chris Prime. I wrote one sentence in December of 2014, let's say. Uh, and so I figured, well, I'm well into this thing by now. Let me choose my my star. And at the time, Chris Pratt had not been in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, he had not been in Jurassic World yet. He was Andy Dwyer on Parks and Rec. And then he had a very small role in Zero Dark Thirty as a SEAL. That's the movie about the Bin Laden raid. Right, so right. I got to see his physical transformation. And I got to see him play a different character. And I thought, this is the guy. And back then, I was thinking, he needs to do something like this in his career. He needs to show people he can do something different. And I'll give him that opportunity now that I've written this first sentence in this book. And uh, so he was the, from the get go, the one person that I wanted to star is my main character, James Reese. And because I was picking my main actor, I figured as a child of the 80s, I should pick my director. And I thought Antoine Fuqua, there's nobody else I want to direct than Antoine. And lo and behold, all these years later, Chris stars, Antoine directs, and we're all executive producers on this thing and on the next season moving forward. That, that is very cool. And I'm, ah, man, what you did, you started with, the, you became a Navy SEAL and then into what you're doing now. But that world fascinates me. You know, as an athlete, uh, I've gotten to do a lot of things in my life. I've been very fortunate, but that always intrigues me. I live in San Diego and uh, as a part of, a, of the San Diego Padres alumni, I only played for the Padres for one year, but they reach out once in a while. And, and we went to Coronado. Nice. And, it was a bunch of us ex players, you know, and some of the guys are, some of the guys are in pretty good shape, but some of the guys are 60 years <laughs> old and, and they're not moving very well, but it's just more for the, you know, the, 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 the people on the base, they get a pretty good crowd and you put on, you know, it, it kind of a charity event. So the first time I played in it, I thought, well, you know, I haven't hit, you know, I've been retired now just over 15 years. And I thought, you know, I can still move a little bit, but yeah, we'll have fun. We'll bat it around a little bit. We get there. And it's the, the SEALs all-star team. And these kids are like 21, 22, and they want to kill you. And, and they've got that smile on their face. You know, some guys they probably grew up watching and, and thought, oh, we're going to get to play against them. Well, we play against them. Jack, it was embarrassing. <laughs> By the fourth inning, I'm like, these kids have too much energy. They want to beat me too bad, and I can't move like them. And uh, it, it ended up being a fun time to watch. I didn't know they were that good, but then we got into some stories. They want, you know, I wanted to know about what they did and they wanted to ask me about major league baseball and, and that life. So it was, it was pretty cool and got to have lunch with them. Nice. That was your life. 96. I think you enlisted. Yep. Uh, for a complete layman like myself, walk, walk me through the process of, why you enlisted and, and what your goals, what your dreams were. You talked about you, you always wanted to serve your country. So just walk me through it. 
Yeah, sure will. Uh, when you were down there in Coronado, though, did you go over to the base side and see the obstacle course and see the grind? Oh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't. Because sometimes they take uh, uh, professional teams or they take uh, Olympic athletes and kind of give them a tour and let them take the logs and do the log PT or the boat PT or run the obstacle course, uh, do those sorts of things. But yeah, for me, it was uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II. So I grew up with pictures of him and his squadron and he flew a plane called the Corsair, F4U Corsair. And when I was a little kid, there was a show on TV and I was watching it in early syndication because it came on in the late seventies and I was watching it in the early eighties, but uh, it was a show called black sheep squadron with Robert Conrad playing Pappy Boynton. And I watched that with my dad and that was our connection to that generation. And he's flying the same plane that my grandfather flew in, he's in, that, in that TV show. I'm making models of that airplane. I have the silk maps that they used to give aviators back then. Because if you had a, a paper map and you went down in the ocean, then your paper map would essentially disintegrate. Uh, but a silk map just would get wet. You could still still use it. So I had those things of his. I had his aviation, his wings. I had his medals. And, uh, and so I just had this connection with the military, but I think it was also just in my DNA. I think it was just in, in my blood and I was drawn towards service. And at the ripe old age of seven, I find out about seals and I find out about them through a, actually my dad's watching football. And for those who remember back in the day, there was ABC, NBC, CBS, and there was this one outlier channel that would always have on Sundays uh, a war movie playing, typically a World War II movie playing opposite football. So my dad would be watching football, and when it came up to a commercial, he'd look at his watch, and I was the remote control. Anybody who grew up back then knows that you're the remote control if you're the kid. Uh, <laughs> back then. So I'd run up to the TV, and I'd switch it to that outlier channel, and I'd watch whatever war movie was on, and my dad would look at his watch for like two minutes and say, turn it back, and then I'd flip it back to football and we'd continue watching football until the next commercial when I could run back up and be that remote again and get back to the war movie. But one of them was a movie called the frogmen. And I started pestering my dad with questions about who these guys are. Cause I saw them climbing up over the beaches and putting these explosives on obstacles. And uh, he said, ask your mother. So my mom was a librarian and still is. And uh, so I grew up with books and a love of reading. So we went down to the local library and did some research into what's a frogman, Oh, underwater demolition team, Naval combat demolition units, uh, oh, SEALs. And I remember from that first venture down into the library, my takeaways were that, hey, these are some of the toughest special operators in the world. And uh, the training is some of the toughest ever designed by a modern military. So for me, I wanted to test myself. And I think that's very common, especially for a young man to want to test themselves. And it used to be just part of society. You would have to get to a certain age and then you'd have to prove your value to the tribe or to the community or to the, to the country. And typically that was through military service, showing that you were uh, your prowess as a warrior or as a hunter uh, to provide for that family, provide for that tribe, defend that tribe. Uh, and then the crossover is that a lot of those stories that were passed on generation to generation uh, in the oral storytelling tradition were passed along in order to keep lessons alive so that you wouldn't have to generation after generation relearn lessons in blood. So they were told to pass on lessons of the hunt and warfare. And so there's that correlation between warfare and storytelling already, even at that young age, even if I didn't recognize it. So went down, did that research, decided I was going to be a SEAL at age seven and just kept my eyes focused on that goal um, uh, all the way until I enlisted and then enlisted and went to boot camp. And so you'd boot camp with everybody else, no matter what they're going to do in the Navy. And now you go right from boot camp, I believe, to a prep course 
and then to buds. So they're trying buds is seal training because they're trying yeah, to get buds. more people through the program. I want to hear about buds. Yeah, basic underwater demolition seal training. And so for me, though, back in the day, they had a different way they looked at it. They thought, well, 80% of the people who start this program aren't going to make it. So let's train them up ahead of time so that when they fail, we shoot them right off to the fleet in the Navy and they do whatever job we train them to do. So I went to boot camp, then to intelligence school in Damneck, Neck, Virginia, and then right from intelligence school to SEAL training. So I got to SEAL training in January of uh, 2017, or sorry, <laughs> 1997. And, uh, and then... <laughs> Right in, I don't know where that came from. And then right into, uh, right into Buds. And so graduated in October of that year. But Buds is essentially the, the training program, the pipeline that leads you into what is now SEAL qualification training. Back in the day, we'd finish Buds, go right to our team, and then go to, go to the graduate school, if you will. And that was called SEAL, SEAL tactical training. Now it's more of a year-long process. You do Buds, you go to SEAL qualification training then you go to your team. But for me, I show up down there. It's what I wanted to do my whole life. And a few weeks into it is hell week. And that's when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you don't really sleep again until Friday afternoon. And, uh, and you're just going, you're moving. That's where most of the attrition, most of that 80% attrition happens. Typically the loudest, the fastest, the strongest guys uh, quit right off the bat, which is uh, I'd heard that going in. And then I experienced it actually on the beach in Coronado, California, because you think of I'm going to be on the verge of hypothermia. I'm going to be awake. This is horrible. And I'm only a half hour into this thing. Why don't I just end my misery now? And for most of the training program, you can quit anytime. So it's an all volunteer program, but usually if you're not in hell week, you have to go find the bell, which is outside of the uh, first phase classroom. And so you go run there, you ring it three times, you take your helmet off, you put it down and you're out. But during hell week, we have it in the trailer hitch of a vehicle that's always within eyesight of you for this entire week. So we make it very easily easy to self-select out of this program. And uh, people quit in droves, those opening couple, that opening night and then the next night, because once you hit, uh, hit the evening hours, they bring in a whole new cadre of instructors. Typically the largest and the meanest instructors come on about midnight uh, to get you to the, to the morning or to make you quit or make as many people quit as they can. But uh, for me, it's a, it was a test and I always wanted to test myself and uh, I did as much research as I possibly could up to that point. And uh, then I was in it. So for me, what I did was I thought back to all the people who really sacrificed everything for me to be able to follow my dreams. So I thought of people from the inception of this country up until today who sacrificed everything so that I could be there on that beach in Coronado, California, following my dreams. And uh, that really helped put things in perspective. And I thought, you know what, I'm not running over the beach here at Iwo Jima or uh, Normandy and into a hail of machine gun bullets from an elevated position with no cover or concealment between the water's edge and uh, this, uh, this high ground. Uh, I'm like, you know what? I can I can shiver a little more here. I can do a few more push-ups. I can make it to the next meal. I can make it to the next day. Uh, those guys, that was hard. What I'm doing, I'm just testing myself and doing some push-ups here in the sand. So, uh, but the hell we get most of that attrition. Then you go into second phase. So now you've proven kind of that you're tough enough in that first phase, and then you go into second phase. And they want to make sure that you're comfortable in the water. So that's where we get more, uh, the most attrition other than hell week is in something called pool comp. And that's when you're climbing along the bottom of the pool, crawling along the bottom of the pool and instructors pounce on you and they rip off your mask and take your regulator out of your mouth and tie it in a knot and they hit you in the kidney. And so you just, you lose all your air and then they kind of back off and you have to 
get all your get your air back on and go through the right procedures in the right order to right. show that you can do these things under stress without oxygen um, and uh, and then keep going. And so that's where we kind of prove that you're comfortable in the water. You pass that phase of instruction and then you go on to land warfare phase where really they want to make sure that you're safe with weapons and demolition. You're doing some small unit tactics. You're doing some navigation. But uh, by that phase, you're really just showing that you're not going to blow yourself or any of your friends up. And uh, then you graduate and then move on these days to SEAL qualification training for another six months. And then you get to your team, do a full year workup with your platoon, and then off you go to deploy. And uh, for a, a lot of years, that was to Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, it's easy peasy. It's just one, two, three, getting that done. You know, you bring me back when you mentioned being at the bottom of the pool with the regulator and ripping it out. When I was a kid, my dad was a diver. <clears throat> that was his, his hobby on the side. I grew up in New Jersey and it was something that we could do together. And I was probably nine, 10, 11 years old. So he says, well, why don't you get certified? I really didn't have interest in doing it, but I'm like, yeah, dad wants me to do it. It's something we could do together. So I did the whole YMCA thing, you know, did, but you had to take the test, do the dive tables. We have a checkout. The first, the, the first uh, test was you got to go into a pool, get a buddy and you got to buddy breathe. Mm-hmm. And I'm 10. Remember this, I'm 10. I, I'm hooked up with about a 60 or 70-year-old man. Not in the best shape. You got to hold on to each other's vests. And you swim around the pool. And you, I, He's taking about four breaths, giving me one, and ripping the regulator out of my mouth. So I almost drowned in the YMCA. Then we have our checkout dive. And we do it in a quarry. It's Jersey. There's snowflakes in the air. I've got a wetsuit. I got a hole in my wetsuit. And they put us down on this plank. You, you shimmy down a rope, probably 30 feet. And we're sitting on this, however they have it set up. But I'm sitting there. I'm freezing cold. I got a hole in my wetsuit. I'm 10. And the next thing you know, sure enough, the, the instructor comes up and he rips my regulator out of my mouth. He rips my goggles off. Now, he didn't punch me in the gut like you, but you were telling that story. And it just brought me back uh, to, 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 I mean, that was one phase trying to get my, I, I, it was either Nowy or Patty. Yeah, right. What it was. Yeah. But uh, that brings me back to to when I was a kid, and I know what you're talking. It's one thing I could relate with you. Like I did that. Yeah. Do you have uh, vis- visibility down there in that in that quarry? Oh, it was probably that particular day because, like I said, there, it was snowing. Now it was flurries, but nevertheless, it was snowing, so it was kind of stormy, cloudy out. I could probably Ooh. see six eight inches. Yeah, that's not the most ideal uh, situation in which to introduce someone young to right. scuba diving right. uh you could juxtapose that to oh you're in hawaii or the caribbean or whatever and right, it's a right beautiful day out and you can see for a long ways and it's not too cold yeah you did it in a very difficult place and and i got certified <laughs> at the same time with my dad uh, i was nine yeah i think he talked them in because i think i think legally you have to be a lot older maybe back then there was a little more leeway, leeway. yeah there was lied or if he just talked them into it but i was nine and uh northern california so up at a place called salt point up there and i remember same thing the wetsuit i think i must still have a picture somewhere i've been searching for it uh it's in a box somewhere that i need to find it at some point but i don't think they had like the smallest wetsuits weren't for kids back then in 1980 what is it would be 1982 i think 83 but you just had to get the smallest adult wetsuit and like cut it off or like roll up the sleeves you know roll it up like that so and same thing with your feet like the same type of deal you feel claustrophobic in this thing and then they put you in this water that's freezing 
and where there's no visibility and put you down doing something similar. I mean, mine was in the ocean, but I remember there was no visibility. So you can't see the bottom. You just go under. You're just hearing yourself breathe and you're just going down. And Salt Point happens to be, I think, the northernmost part of a great white uh, shark breeding ground that works its way all the way down to Southern California, I believe. So you have that in the back of your head. So that for a nine-year-old, that was pretty interesting. But uh, that was my introduction to, to scuba diving. And it was with Nawi back in the day. And then I got certified multiple times over the years after that. But, uh, but I was thinking about it recently because my kids are you know, a little bit older. My other youngest is 12. And I was thinking about where to get him certified. And we're in Park City, Utah. And they do a similar thing here where you do all the classroom, you do the pool right. work, and then you go out to some quarry to get that, those, those final qualification dives. So uh, I think we'll do that at some point. Isn't it amazing, though, you were talking about being in Hawaii with the, you know, you got a half suit on and people are carrying your tanks for you. You don't have to worry about doing your dive. You don't have to worry about doing your dive charts. They've got it all worked out for you. You know, you're with somebody. They're holding on to you. Uh and other computers, you know, my, I remember the, the second time I got certified, I think the computers had, uh, had, uh, come on the scene. And, uh, so it made it a lot, even dive watches back then there was a citizen dive watch that I had that was surprisingly accurate. Uh, by the time I got to the early nineties and, uh, very different than my regulator setup and all that for in 1983, where it was all, oh, I guess you'd call it analog, but you really did have to know the work those tables out. I, I, and I was in, we were in Maui and this is when my kids are a little bit younger. So it had to be 10 years ago and they wanted to go scuba diving. I said, Oh, well, I'm a professional scuba diver. <laughs> now we are, you know, I always throw the Maui and the patty out That's just right. so everybody knows that. I know so you know. Right. So I said, well, what do we need to do? You know, they give me the prices and they said, well, what you're going to have to do is we're, you know, we'll take them in the pool here. We'll work around them. I, I mean, it was like 10 minutes with the 10 year olds and then we're headed down to the beach and I'm, I'm hitting my kid. I'm like, you carry your own tank. And I'm thinking, this is a far cry from me sitting and working out tables and taking tests and almost drowning with the old guy, buddy breathing. I said, you got it. You got an easy course. I could have just done this. and Yeah. Diving. But uh, <laughs> no, it was just something my dad wanted me to do. You know, it's like, if you're, you don't have to go through a hunting school to go hunting, but, it's probably wise of you if it's something you're going to do in your life to do the safety course and, and learn about the, the craft that you're about to go into. Um, you mentioned you wanted to be a SEAL when you were seven years old. Did you did you ever waver or was that from seven whenever asked, I'm going to be a SEAL? And there's no question about it, because I know for me as a kid. And I remember earlier than that, two years old, three years old, it's what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be a baseball player, of course. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a matter of this is what I'd like to do. No, this is what I am going to do yeah. through high school. You know, uh, you know, I signed a letter. I'm going to the University of Southern California. I got a scholarship and I'd be, you know, having my meetings with my high school counselor. And she'd be like, well, what's your backup plan? What do you want to study? I said, ma'am, I don't really care what I study. Just keep me eligible. I want to stay on the field. I'm going to play in the big leagues for a long time. And She'd look at me like, well, OK, but what do we don't you understand? There is no backup plan. I'm, it, it was already in my mind. It sounds like a lot of your story, only a different genre. Yep. No, exactly the same. And so many people like that guidance counselor and even people, if they don't mean to, they can just tell you with that look like, oh, like you'll come to the realization. Right, right. 
that only X percent of whatever high school players will go on to college and any and X percent of that will go on to the professional leagues. And, uh, and a small percentage of that will, will be able to make a good living at it because they're good enough to start or whatever it might be. Uh, and they don't even have to articulate it like that, but you, they tell you with a look. Uh, like that guidance counselor saying, well, what's your backup plan? And she didn't really mean backup plan. She means like, what are you going to do when this doesn't work out? Um, and so I think ignoring all that, there is a wanting to knowing what you're going to do, like listening to that calling. I think everybody hears a calling at an early age and some listen and some don't. And I happen to listen to mine and both of mine uh, service and writing. Um, and I look at them as professions not careers. I think people start, when they start thinking of something in terms of a career, it just shifts that focus in their mind and puts you into this kind of this different sphere rather than a profession. Like you're a professional ball player. Uh, there's, it's called the profession of arms, not the career of arms for a reason. And uh, writing is a profession uh, rather than a career. And uh, I think if you listen to yourself early on in life and don't let people dissuade you or use what they do say or how they look at you to dissuade you as fuel uh, to make you do that extra push up, that extra pull up, make you throw those extra, whatever you're going to do, spend that extra hour on the field, whatever it is, whatever it is, read that book about strategy, whether it's in baseball or it's on in tactics or strategy, whatever it might be uh, on the battlefield, that all those things are helping build this foundation and you continue to build on that foundation throughout life. But if you don't listen to that calling early on and you go off that course, then you're looking back. Oh, if only I'd spent that little extra time on the field practicing. Maybe I could, maybe I could have played ball, or maybe I should have done this and not like not not been dissuaded by the people who told me how hard it is to play in uh, in the NFL or in you know professional hockey or whatever whatever that passion is or special operations. Oh, you know how many people make it into the SEAL teams? What are you going to do when you fail out? Like that's what the look tells you? What's your backup plan uh, for when you don't make it through this program? And it's very, very similar. Anything that's top tier like that, that's difficult. And it being difficult is part of that draw. It's that draw, that draw for you, that draw for me, it being difficult that few people can do it. That's what inspires us along the way to put in that extra work to get there to achieve those dreams. But if you listen to other people and don't use it as fuel, because you're going to tell you, it's not just about don't listen to them. You're going to hear it because everyone is going to tell you either like that guidance counselor did or with that look that uh, you should have a backup plan. But it's uh, it's about using those looks and those 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 questions about what you're going to do when you don't make it uh, into the professional leagues or you don't make it to play in college or you get cut from the team or whatever. What are you going to do next? Using that as fuel so that you can go and What's great about this country is that we have the op these options and opportunities. Like we won the lotto just by being born in this country and all, most all of the rest of the world wishes they could just have been born here so they could pursue these dreams. And we got that. We won that lotto by being born here, no matter what our circumstances, because um, everyone's going to get knocked down. Everybody's going to run up against something that's going to be difficult in life. No matter if you're you know, born with a huge trust fund or you're the most gifted athlete in the world, doesn't matter. You're going to get knocked down somewhere along the way, but we're all going to have to overcome these things. So it's just being born here gives us the opportunity. So Man, take advantage of that and, uh, and, and listen to that calling. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 